Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Today we're looking at Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Fours, number 69. The, the Padana, Mahapadana, uh, the Samapadana. on the four types of exertion or striving as Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it, translates it. Meditation requires exertion, requires us to exert ourselves. You want results, you gotta work just like anything. You have to be energetic Viryena Dukkha Majiti It's through effort that one overcomes suffering But not all effort is right effort In fact there's a lot of there are a lot of ways to exert yourself that are not going to bring about much result meditator quickly realizes that simply forcing your mind to calm down doesn't really work. Pushing really, really hard to quiet the mind, to calm the mind, or working really, really hard to learn to see clearly doesn't work that way. It's very much involved with the self, ego, you can't bring about insight if you're insight into, say, non-self, if you're forcing yourself, if you're trying to control the outcome. So right effort actually has to be quite delicate, quite specific. It won't do to just push yourself really hard. This isn't like manual labor it's not like working with the body even though we do walking and sitting meditation our focus isn't on the body the work we're doing is in the mind so how do you work the mind which ways should we exert the mind and Buddha gave a simple formula of four types of exertion but it relates uh, practically speaking to wholesome and unwholesome mind states, and that's it. Our efforts should be in regards to wholesome and unwholesome states. We're not trying to bring about neutral states. So a bit of understanding. Um, calm is considered to be a neutral state. It's not ethical or unethical. It's not wholesome or unwholesome. There's nothing ethically charged about a calm state. Happiness it's not ethically charged. Physical pain is also not ethically uh, it's not ethically charged. They're neutral. These states are not what we're striving for or against. So if you strive to get rid of all the pain in your body or if you strive to gain pleasure, 
or if you strive to feel calm, none of these are right striving. Our striving is in regards to wholesome and unwholesome, good and bad mind states. And about each of these, the Buddha said, the Buddha says, Chandang Janeti, when develop, when causes to arise, Chanda, interest, zeal, zest, excitement, one becomes interested in the inclination, one becomes inclined towards them. Vayamati, one exerts oneself, strives. Viryangarabhati, cultivates effort. Chittang paganhati, one augments the mind, strengthens the mind in regards to these four only. Padahati, and strives. So what are the four? Well, in regards to unwholesome states, what we have to do, we have to work hard to guard against the arising of unwholesome states. And this is very much on the basis of our moment-to-moment our, um, -moment experience in meditation. When you experience something that, if left unguarded, unwholesome thoughts and emotions would arise, anger, greed, delusion, ego, conceit, whatever, you instead cultivate mindfulness. You use mindfulness, you practice the meditation with effort. You're exerting yourself to prevent that prevent them from arising. You see something. When you say to yourself, seeing, seeing, it involves the effort in trying not to, trying to avoid, trying to prevent the consequent greed or anger or delusion that might arise. The judgment. I'm trying to stop judging things. Learn to just see things as they are, for what they are, to be present. We're talking today, today I was spent spent five hours in the hot in the heat. It's the hottest day. Uh, it's quite a hot day today. Hottest day in a while, which is odd for September, but um, I was teaching outside, it just happened to be the day for clubs at the university and so teaching meditation, a lot of noise and heat and everything. And so uh, I was explaining this to people, explaining to people about dealing with noise, dealing with and being able to experience all the things So the first one is um, the, the guarding the mind. The second 
second Mahabhadana is still relating to, or Samapadana, is still relating to, still relating to unwholesome states. But this is once they've already arisen. So if you can just catch the experience before the famine arises, then great, there's no problem. But what happens when you're already upset? when you're already attached to something, when you're already confused or deluded. But it says then you bahana, you abandon it. Abandoning is, is an interesting part of the practice. So you actually focus on the experience that many people would think, well, doesn't that, doesn't that just make it worse? Isn't that just going to make you more angry? If you're angry and you say angry, angry. If you want something, you say wanting. Are you just reaffirming it? Ah, but no, you see. Greed doesn't actually lead to greed. Anger doesn't lead to anger. So in between each iteration, you have to go back to the, the object that's making you angry. If you don't go back to the object that's making you angry or greedy, or if you don't have an object, that's going to make you angry or greedy. It, it, it can't perpetuate, it can't increase. So anger just fades away, greed just fades away, delusion just fades away. If you don't feed it. And so again, what are we doing? When you put out effort to say to yourself, angry, angry, or wanting, wanting, confused, confused, or whatever. Then you're no longer feeding it. You're cultivating a, a objective state, a non-judgmental state of mind. And so yes, there may be still some greed and anger and delusion, but you're not feeding it. That's the second Samabhadana. The third and the fourth one, on the other hand, relate to, it's a simple formula, there's nothing deeper or hard to understand about this anyway. It's just important that we know this is one of the main uh, qualities that, that relate to enlightenment. So it's important that we go through these for those of you who haven't heard of them. The third and fourth are the opposite. They relate to wholesome states. So we have bhavana badana, which means striving or exerting yourself to cultivate. Cultivate what? Wholesome states. Well, there may be there are many wholesome states that we haven't given rise to. When our mind isn't wholesome, the mind isn't wholesome, it's a breeding ground for, for unwholesome states, for evil, bad states, states that lead us to suffering. So to avoid that, we cultivate wholesome states, good states, states that lead to happiness. We have to cultivate them. So this is a, another part of our meditation practice. What are we cultivating? We're cultivating mindfulness, we're cultivating clear comprehension, we're cultivating morality, ethics, we're cultivating concentration, we're cultivating wisdom, we're cultivating clarity of mind, freedom, objectivity, lots of good stuff. Again, it just comes back to effort, you have to put out the effort to do it. And the fourth one is in regards to wholesome states that have already arisen. Another part of our effort is to maintain 
wholesome state. It's quite easy for meditation to falter, for us to lose our way, even after we've found it. It's something that you have to maintain. There's two ways. One, a meditator feels like they're progressing, and so they get excited and they start pushing harder. And when you start pushing too hard, again, that's the, where the problem comes in. You're forcing it, there's greed, there's ego, delusion. No good. And so you falter as a result. Or the other way is a meditator stops putting out any effort. So they become lazy because they think, oh, yeah, I'm already doing well, and so they stop meditating. Neither one works. You know, to be a really good meditator, you have to be vigilant, persistent, patient, methodical. You have to maintain your practice. So really a simple set of teachings, but one that we have to keep in mind. Mainly, a, really just a, a sort of a extrapolation of the idea of cultivating effort or an explanation of what are the benefits of right effort. Right effort does all four of these things. It doesn't mean you have to do one at a time. All four of these come into play when you apply mindfulness to the wholesome or the unwholesome or the causes of wholesomeness and the causes of unwholesomeness. So you prevent unwholesome from arising and you dispel it once it's already arisen abandon it and you cultivate wholesomeness that hasn't arisen and you maintain it applying mindfulness to the various aspects of our practice with effort, you know, exerting yourself to be mindful reminding yourself, it's a chore really it's a work that you have to do but there's a real benefit that you can see comes from it, your mind is clear all of a sudden you're no longer confused, you're no longer lost no longer without refuge. You start to be mindful, your mind is strong, invincible, unassailable. So, just a little bit of Dhamma tonight. It's good, a short one is good for me. It's been a long day, so I'm going to go with that. I don't think Robin is here. Let me see. Nope, no Robin. So I guess I'm asking questions and answering them. Let's look at our site here. Hmm. If you're still trying to ask questions in the chat, I'm not looking there anymore. Questions are now in their own tab. You have to ask them there. Okay, insomnia. I restarted meditation without a real technique and started Vipassana in September. I don't understand. You're talking about a emotional upheaval. I don't really get what that is. Um, I'm not familiar with that terminology. You're asking if there is an uh, upheaval or on a sub-level. Um, you don't experience anything that would cause the insomnia, I suppose, is what you're saying? Uh, I, I really can't... It I'm not sure that you're actually practicing the meditation as I teach it. I would recommend you read my booklet. 
and practice that way. You can read some, of, watch some of my videos on insomnia. Maybe you have. You say you've started vipassana meditation September first. Well, assuming that is the practice that I teach, that's only six days. So maybe give it a little bit longer before you throw in the towel. Um, but insomnia is a fairly easy one to cure, I would think. Well, I've found. Um, first of all, because it's not necessary that you sleep more. You, you don't need to sleep nearly as much, and so you stop worrying about sleeping. In fact, we have the idea of not trying to sleep. That's the first way, the first step in curing insomnia anyway, is to stop worrying about when you're going to fall asleep or the fact that you can't sleep. Then you apply mindfulness according to the booklet as I've taught it. You can lie there and say rising, falling, or you can say lying, lying, or note the stress or anything that arises that's keeping you awake. And if you note it like that, you should find it's actually quite quick to become free from. I don't know about the whole emotional upheaval thing. I'm not really sure how that's related. But it's certainly, um, you know, if you have insomnia, you have insomnia. But all that means is you're not sleeping much. Okay, so great. Do some meditation. Find once you start meditating, it all balances out. And if you need to sleep, you will sleep. If there's only time to either w sit or walk, is it always better to sit? No. There's nothing better or worse. Sometimes you've been walking a lot, so you think, well, I should do sitting. Sometimes you've been sitting a lot, so you think I should do walking. Neither one is better or worse than the other. Maybe a little bit of favoritism towards sitting, but I don't know. I don't even know whether that's a valid statement. So yeah, I mean, the general inclination would be to just sit, but what are some good circumstances to choose walking over sitting? Well, yeah, when you've been sitting a lot. And the idea is just to maintain a balance. If you do office job all day, well, yeah, you should go home and do some walking meditation. It'd be good for you. What do you propose to meditate upon when life is feeling pretty numb? Emotions are detached. You'd probably say just that, meditate on being numb, we'll give it a try. Looks like you've answered your own question. I mean, it sounds like you're judging of that. You don't like it or you're worried about it or you're afraid of something. So I would note all that if that arises. Because numb is just a, a value judgment that you give to it. And so, you know, numb is not really a thing. There's a feeling maybe or there's a, um, some kind of generally disliking feeling of some sort but numb is just a concept don't focus on concepts focus on what really is happening in, in that moment one moment at a time during meditation I have a lot of pulsing headaches because they pulse with my heartbeat I only get time to say pain and the headache is gone only to return with the next heartbeat started saying pain and in the next second when there's no pain I say watching I'm watching to see if the pain comes again. So I'm saying pain, watching, pain, watching, until the pain is no longer there. Is that okay? I wouldn't do that. I would just say, you know, if the pain is is come is throbbing, um, then maybe focus more on the throbbing feeling. You say feeling, feeling. Or if the pain is throbbing, you can just stay with the pain. 
or just note it once and then go back to the breath. Something is like a strobe. Mm. It's a good one, no? I'm not. I w I'm not convinced that. Well, watching anyway is not a very good one, because you shouldn't be watching. Ideally, you would say pain and then go back to the rising and falling, and only go up to the pain again if you notice it again. I mean, that's probably what it would be. Is you you feel the pain, you say pain, and then if it's gone, you come back to the rising. Don't wait for it to come again. And continue rising, falling. If immediately you notice it again, well, that's fine. Say again, pain, and then again go back. And eventually, your mind will just will just not notice it, and will instead the right notice the rising and falling, at least for a while. You see. But uh, we don't do watching like that in general. When something disappears, the best advice I would say is to go back to the rising and falling, even if it means instantly you're going to go back to the pain. It's fine because it's not it's not stable like that. No condition is stable, it'll change. Especially once your concentration gets better and you're able to leave it alone and say rising, falling, some time before your mind goes back to the pain. I would think. I mean, there's no hard and fast method. And wouldn't worry too much about it, but hopefully that advice helps. Not really interested in Buddhism in general. I had someone today like that who said, you know, I want to learn to meditate, but I'm not really into the God part of Buddhism. <laughs> he said, there's no God in Buddhism. And I was saying, oh, Buddhism for me is meditation. I want to know if the Buddhist teachings are critical for the development of mindful meditation. Well, that is the Buddhist teachings. If you're wondering if all the Buddhist teachings, I mean, there's a lot that are just more like observations about reality and karma and the universe, and so you don't have to worry about those, like you don't have to believe in angels or rebirth or so on. You just have to be in the present moment. So it's important to separate the core and the fluff. And core is the Four Noble Truths. That suffering is only caused because we cling. And that's, if you don't, if you can't adhere to that, then I'm not sure how you'll get through in meditation. On the other hand, that's more of a deep teaching that you get through the meditation. So as long as you're being mindful, that's cool. Cool by me. On the other hand, if you're not ethical, that could be a problem. So a lot of people say that. Well, yeah, you want to meditate, but you don't want to keep, say, the five precepts. You're going to be. You're going to have problems there if you're drinking alcohol or killing or stealing or cheating or lying. Not likely you're going to progress. But that's the thing: is that so many of these teachings are claimed to be essential for meditation. If you don't believe that, well. And uh, I don't know what to say, but that's the only reason for keeping them is because they support the practice. Regarding the third, fourth efforts, how does one know if one is not exerting too much, pushing too hard? One feels meditation may be working, so he pushes harder. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Never push harder. That's greed. That's anger. That's delusion. Not anger, but it's delusion. It's conceit. It's um, it's a delusion of self. That you're going to somehow fix, you're going to somehow make it better. If you feel like you're pushing too hard, you're pushing too hard. I mean, not not exactly, because it's possible for there just to arise certain experiences, and then you you judge them or you interpret them as meaning you're pushing too hard. That's not the case. If it feels like you're pushing, you're going to feel for it. I mean, you have to exert yourself. There is some exertion. 
but it's only exerting yourself to be mindful, right? Just to say to yourself, rising, falling, take some effort. Because you want to just go back to, to, to just letting it flow, right? It's much easier. But beyond that, there's no pushing harder. Meditation isn't something you can push harder with. You feel that it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you off track. Um, okay, long one. Uh, a lot of pain. Noted pain for 20 minutes. You don't have to note for 20 minutes. If, you, if after some time it doesn't go away, just ignore it. 20 minutes is probably too long. Just try and go back to do, try and ignore it. Ah, but you woke in the middle of the night. Mm, okay. I wouldn't. So I still wouldn't stay with it. I'd probably note pain for a while, and if it doesn't go away, try to just come back to say lying, lying, or rising. Lying. Desire for it to go away. The difference between pain and disliking. I don't think I've separated disliking from feelings. Yeah, I mean, if you don't feel the disliking, if it's not clear to you, don't worry about it. Just say pain, pain, it's fine. But if you notice, oh, I really don't like this, then you would say disliking, that's fine. It doesn't have to be, it, 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 whatever's clear to you, that's most important. How important is not moving while meditating? Sometimes I feel that scratching my nose or readjusting my position ruins my session. Well, that can't be the case because there's no such thing as your session. You can't ruin something that doesn't exist. All that exists are momentary experiences. Probably what you're thinking of is some prolonged state of calm, which is not what we're looking for at all. We're looking to be mindful in the present moment. So if you scratch, just be sure you're mindful of it. Uh, forcing yourself not to move is of questionable value because uh, the, the idea is to be mindful uh, naturally. So if you do scratch, just first say wanting to scratch, wanting to scratch, and then maybe you don't have to. Eventually you won't have to. But then if you still have to, then say raising. And Mahasi Sayadaw recommends rubbing instead of scratching. So it is rubbing, rubbing. But um, as far as forcing yourself not to move, potential benefit. I wouldn't be too inclined towards that method. Ideally, you're not forcing it. But uh, to some extent, you know, you want to say to yourself, look, I'm going to try to sit still. But beyond that, if you really have to scratch, then just say wanting to scratch, wanting to scratch. Or itching, itching to start with, right? Itching, itching, wanting to scratch, wanting to scratch. And then if you don't have to scratch, don't scratch. If you do, then just raising, touching, rubbing, rubbing, lowering. What kind of merit does one receive through some great discovery that they saves millions of lives, such as the polio vaccine? Can one be born in the higher realm based on dana alone? Of course, yes. It's mostly based on things like dana. But it, it also has to do with your state of mind. So it's not it's nothing to do with inventing the cure to polio. It's all about your state of mind as you do anything. So you don't have to do anything good like that. The person is kind and generous and gentle and compassionate. And all sorts of good things. And then uh, it doesn't matter whether they give a lot or a little or whether they do a lot or a little. It's very much your state of mind. Which is as it should be. I mean, there's no magic here. It's not like, oh, I saved a million people and you're racking up points or something. 
It's not merit. Merit is a really bad word because it makes you think of point, a point system. If there are any points, you get points for every moment that you're mindful. Does the teaching of Buddhism vary amongst different cultures, countries due to their societal norms? For instance, would people who lived in Europe be taught the same as people in Tibet? And do you think the people are not, that are not ordained are an equally reliable source to learn about Buddhism? Mm. Okay, so a couple of questions. That's the reason why we stick to insight meditation, mindfulness meditation, is because it's applicable to everyone. Something you can apply to all character types. With samatha meditation, potentially different cultures, different, I mean, just different people, right? Have to take different meditation techniques in order to calm down. So ordinary meditation requires um, an examination of such things. You know, so different cultures are, um, have different sorts of people. Now, the only thing I would say about this type of meditation is that as a teacher, you have to be able to teach in different ways. Um, so the actual practice doesn't, but the way of, getting, of explaining it to people does. You get people to do the same thing, but how do you convince them to do it? And how do you explain to them how to do it for different cultures? That can vary. Um, how I teach Thai people is quite different from how I teach people in France, for example, or Germany. I find it a lot easier to teach Americans and Canadians, I think, because that's very familiar to me. Um, but people have strong culture, like say Germany, France, Thailand, Sri Lanka. You have to teach differently. You have to be you have to have some sense of the culture, a sense of the person, sense of their state of mind, which is actually quite different from what you're most likely accustomed to. But that's as a teacher. Could a fetus become an arahant in the womb? Oh, dear me. I'm not answering that. Oh, maybe I should. I don't know. No, it's not. That's no good. None of these speculative. That's. Don't we have speculative? Please do not ask questions that are speculative. If you're not a fetus, that's speculative. It's my understanding that Buddhists believe that the mind and the brain are separate entities. Is this an actual insight you can experience through meditation, or is it a logical argument? Hmm. Well, the brain doesn't exist, so that's probably the logical argument. The brain doesn't exist, the mind doesn't exist. Mind states arise and cease, those exist. Think of it as the difference between what you can verify from a first-person first perspective versus that which you conceive of based on data, evidence. It's quite a different realm. Buddhism deals only with first-person proof. And I know proof is a weighty word that most people don't like, most scientists don't like to talk about, but um, if you think there are certain things that you can prove. I can't prove that I'm sitting here talking to you. I can't prove that I'm in this room even. I can't prove that this room exists. But I can prove that I'm seeing, to myself anyway, that I'm seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. I don't know what I'm seeing. Am I really seeing this computer screen? Or, or am I just a brain in a vat somewhere being fed data through the back of my head? I don't know. But I do know that I'm seeing. It's like Descartes says, said, cogito ergo sum. And it's a really, it's a, I agree with him in this. Because he said, 
no matter what, no matter where I am, if he didn't think brain in a vat, but if you're a brain in the vat, no matter what, thinking exists. You can't tell me that I'm being deluded into thinking that I'm thinking, because I have to think in order to think. Right? In order to think that I'm, in order to feel like I'm deluded, I have to feel. Well, that's quite quite profound, really. I mean, I mean, it, it's impressive that Descartes came up with this. Some guy who wasn't enlightened, he came up with a lot of other weird stuff, but uh, it's definitely definitely deserves credit and, and appreciation. Um, so. So that's the difference. The mind that you talk about, uh, that we talk about, is just momentary mind states, and those exist. Cogito ergo sum. Sum is probably a bad, but he didn't really mean, he just meant there is something. He didn't really mean the ego exists. He meant, you know, I, I can't, there can't be nothing. Because I have to be tricked. In order to be tricked into thinking there was something, I have to think. So, the cogito. Um, and that's the point. The brain is just a, something you think about. It doesn't actually, there isn't actually the proof. And that's Im to us, we take the next step to say, because it's not proof, there's no proof of it, it's in the realm of that which has no bearing on reality, or no direct bearing on reality, or we say it, does, it isn't real. So it's not even that there's no proof of it, it's that it, it isn't something we experience, therefore we don't consider it to be ultimately real. It's made up of experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. And of course, in a practical sense, it's useful and it's necessary and it's real to talk about things like the brain, but, but that's only in a conventional sense. For Buddhist, from a Buddhist point of view, for the, from the benefit of Buddhist practice, it's useless. Thinking about the brain is useless. The only physical thing that, ex that exists, really, is we consider real, is the four elements. Well, it sounds like going way back in time, you know, to medieval, to, to ancient era when we didn't know a thing about matter, but it's actually incredibly profound that the Greeks and the Buddhists, and were, Greeks probably got it from the Buddhists, maybe, uh, were thinking about this, because they weren't talking about, oh, we'll find the four elements. It was based on experience. Experience only has four elements, earth, air, water, fire, which is hardness, softness, uh, stiffness, flaccidity, heat, cold, and and cohesion. Besides that, there's nothing you can experience about matter. So that's all that exists, not the brain. How does Buddhism address burnt out overexertion? How does one recover? Insight on this will be very helpful. Well, just like anything else. I mean, burnt out is just a concept. It's just a judgment on your part. There's no such thing as being burnt out. There's only experiences. Being burnt out, it sounds like a real habit, something that's become habitual, and it's changed you, perhaps changed you physically as well. Um, but whatever, it's a habit. You cultivate it. You can convert it to a new habit. You have to note all the emotions related to being burnt out, or the feelings, or the depression, or the tire fatigue, or whatever. And eventually it'll change. What am I? Do I even exist? Is all this an illusion? If so, why would I want to believe this? Why not just stick to ignorance as bliss? Well, all that other stuff is rubbish, but why not stick to... Well, sorry, the, the questions... I, I'm, that's over. 
so I don't mean to be critical like that, but all your first questions are are not not useful. I wouldn't even ask them. But why not stick to ignorance as bliss? Why not just stick to ignorance as bliss? Because ignorance is not bliss. It's only ignorant people who think that. Ignorance is bliss. Think of a dog, right? You think of the dog as being blissful because it's ignorant. It's not really. It's simple. And a, a house dog is in a fairly, in some ways, a fairly enviable position. Not, not really. I mean, uh, not from a human point of view. But uh, you know this philosophy that um, better a Descartes unsatisfied, oh no, better Socrates unsatisfied than a pig satisfied. I can't remember who said that, but it was some Western philosopher. I'm sure somebody out there knows. I can't remember. I took a philosophy course many years ago and we talked about this. But see, that's, Buddhism doesn't stop there. It doesn't, doesn't accept that. You know, Socrates, and that's not like it's Socrates, but an enlightened being has so much more happiness and, and, and uh, satisfaction than a pig ever could have. A pig is not capable of great peace they look happy at times, but they also look terribly unhappy at times. But they're wallowing in this state of confusion and delusion, and they have such fear. And and moreover, they're 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 because of all the ignorance and delusion in their minds. They're constantly in in uh, in danger of being overwhelmed. You know, a pig that is slaughtered suffers emotion, incredible emotional suffering. An enlightened being who is slaughtered suffers no emotional discomfort. And so that's an extreme, but it goes with everything. When an enlightened being experiences anything that would cause another person great stress or suffering, they feel no stress or suffering. And so given how many stressful, how much stress there is in life and the potential for stress, especially based on ignorance. If you're ignorant and you do things that cause you... If, you do, if you're ignorant, you'll tend to do things that are against your own best interests, just because it's all, at least, at the very least, random, but um, more likely building up. Well, it's actually quite random. Sometimes you're good, sometimes you're bad, and it's all just a mess. And so you're constantly constantly dissatisfied so you aren't able to figure I mean consider someone who isn't able to figure a tool out computer say you know, a person who doesn't know how to work the computer gets quite frustrated but a person who knows how to work the computer can get a lot done and can be quite satisfied with it but for people who don't know how to like if you've ever used a piece of software there was this 3D imaging software called Blender I don't know if anybody knows Blender but anyway I was looking at it for some reason actually you can use Blender for video editing but the the interface is nothing like any other piece of software I've ever used, and so I gave up quite quickly on it. Well, it's easy to if you don't uh, something is if you're if you're ignorant about something, and so life is like that. If you're ignorant about how life works, the chances of you being blissful and happy are, are pretty slim. 
your opportunity for bliss is, is much reduced. Whereas a person who understands life, knows how it works, knows the ins and outs, has much more potential for happiness, satisfaction, and so on. But all this stuff about what am I, do I even exist, is all beside the point. I mean, what exists is experience. There's, you can't doubt that. Does the element of cohesion refer to the experience of putting things together as a whole? Now, cohesion is the, that things stick together, like your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth, or peanut butter sticks to the roof of your mouth, or paint, no. Uh, when you have sweat, it feels kind of sticky. But it actually doesn't. You actually don't feel the cohesion element. It's just inferred. Uh, it's inferred because you, know, you feel the pressure. But what you actually feel is a tension you know, like a pulling. So it's actually wyodata, it's actually the air element. The element of cohesion isn't actually experienced, but it's inferred. Because you can, you know, you feel, as a result of it, you feel tension. Is there a need to marry personal experience style explaining stuff versus empirical data proof? If not, how do two people know they're having similar experiences? I don't understand. I'm sorry, I can't answer that. Personal experience style of explaining stuff versus empirical data. I don't get it. I think, I think, I think it's been a long day. And maybe if I was less uh, fatigued suffering from heat stroke <laughs> I'd be able to answer a question but it doesn't sound like a question about meditation anyway so I think it's trying to be but I'm not convinced that it is sorry don't think so much sounds like you might be thinking a lot you should say thinking, thinking okay enough for tonight sorry for the cutting it short but Again, well, I'll be back tomorrow. So have a good night, everyone. Thanks for all your questions.